Please stand. We'll turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. The Gospel of Matthew. If you're new here, I invite you to find a pew Bible in front of you or find someone next to you who has a Bible and have the Bible open in front of you because we want to hear from God this morning. Hear from God's Word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35 through verse 38. This is God's inspired and completely true word here together. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Would you pray with me? So, Father, as we come to you and as we have heard from your word now and are going to think more on it, we do pray that your name would be honored here among us today. That your son Jesus Christ would be exalted as the good shepherd, the compassionate shepherd of the sheep. And that your spirit would do a work among us, even changing hearts, giving comfort where comfort is needed, conviction where conviction is needed, clarification where clarification is needed, that you would do this and as such bring great glory to your name. Lord, we do pray for the many here who maybe this is their first time in hearing the word. I pray that you would give open ears to them to hear and to respond in faith and to see in Jesus a good, compassionate Savior. And we do praise you for your compassion to us, compassion to us in all of our needs. And we are a needy people. And you know what we need. You know what we, we need even before we ask you. And so we do come to you, Lord, asking that you would meet all of our needs, all the various needs in this room, health needs, financial needs, relationships that are in crisis and need to be restored, and there needs to be reconciliation. I pray in particular for those who are suffering with anxiety. And I ask that you would remind them of all your promises, your good, tender care of us. But we do look to you with expectancy, even as we consider the ripeness of the fields that are out there. Forgive us for our faithlessness, our sluggishness. Even as we look out into this church and we see the many little ones, little ones who are being catechized and taught and challenged through the ministry of this church and through the ministry of their parents and school teachers and others. We do pray, Lord, that you would cause them to respond to the gospel in a way that is appropriate. 
And as you have commanded us, we do pray for more laborers for the harvest. We ask that you would begin with us, moving us to compassion for the lost and weary around us and among us. We pray in particular that you would raise up more pastors, more pastors in this part of the world, that churches would be encouraged and equipped week in and week out with your word. Oh Lord, do this so as to bring glory to your name. We do also pray, as you have commanded us for the leaders that you have appointed over us. If we're honest, Lord, many of us are weary. We feel harassed. But we do pray, Lord, for these leaders, that in your good timing and good providence have put them here for such a time as this. So we pray for Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Kenny, for Mayor Gondek, as well as the many other representatives in office. And Lord, we ask that you would save them, that they would turn from seeing the masses of people as merely numbers on a spreadsheet or people to exploit, but that they would see them even with the eyes of Christ and have great compassion on the people under their care. And so we ask now as we look into your word and consider the compassion of Christ that you would open our eyes to behold these things, these truths. Lord, I do pray that you by the Spirit would empower me to serve these people here today with the truth, keep a guard over the door of my mouth that I might not sin against you, but speak your word and what is needful for each person here today for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the crowds are in Calgary after missing the last couple years of Stampede. Lots of people are coming here from all over the world. There were crowds downtown on Friday. We had our own crowd out, out here yesterday morning. And once again, just thank you to all those who were involved in that. In particular, thank you to Michael and to Jared and to the many others who served the food to us. It was a great time to fellowship with a lot of people. I don't know how many people we had coming through there, but there was a lot of people. That line just kept coming, just kept coming. The pancakes kept coming. The sausages kept coming. It was a great time. Crowds are funny things, though. Uh, they're pretty funny. Uh, they, they, they have an ability to have a unique effect on people. To, to affect how you feel, what you think. You know, you go to a sporting event at the Saddle Dome, go watch the Flames or watch a concert, and that kind of a crowd can move you to a certain kind of response, right? It, it moves you to join with the people in excitement and celebration. That's quite different, though, from a crowd, maybe a crowd that's gathered around the graveside. That moves you to feel something quite different, doesn't it? Sorrow pity, maybe confusion. Crowds are funny things. Well, I'm thankful in the Lord's providence we have this crowd here this morning. And I trust that God has brought each and every one of you here for a particular reason, and that particular reason is to hear from him this morning, and to hear in particular his heart for sinners and sufferers. The heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers which is marked by that million-dollar word, a billion-dollar word, you can't even put a value on it, compassion. Christ's compassion for sinners and sufferers. That's the message we need to hear. 
Because I imagine some of you are coming here today. Maybe you had a conversation with somebody out in the courtyard yesterday morning and they invited you to come to church. Maybe it's been years since you've been to church. Maybe you've never been to church. Maybe this is the first time that you've actually heard from God. And you've got all sorts of troubles, all sorts of confusion in your mind, lots of questions. And probably the question that most of you have is, does God care what I'm going through? And is he going to do anything about it? Does God care what I'm going through right now? Does God care what I've gone through the entirety of my life? And is he going to do anything about it? See, it's one thing to say, oh, I care. It's quite another to do something about it. And I trust that we're going to see this morning, and as we see in this text, the compassion of Christ for sinners and sufferers of all kinds. And I want us to marvel at that truth, to feel it, to be gripped with it, to be encouraged by it, to be even confronted by it. See, Jesus, the Son of God, sees our condition, and he does something about it. Jesus' ministry, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know this. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Jesus' ministry was very much focused on people. He was a people person. Of course, Jesus' ultimate ministry was in fulfilling the will of the Father. He said he came to do the will of the Father, but that will was to come and seek and to save the lost. To seek and save lost sheep, sheep who had gone astray, sheep who were bitter and confused and angry and had all sorts of questions. That's why he came. He came to save people. Jesus' ministry was one towards people. And so we see here in verse 35 there that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages in Galilee that is north of Jerusalem. And he wandered. I like the fact that it says here Jesus went through even the villages. I come from a small town just north of Calgary here. You know, Jesus doesn't ignore kind of the average everyday people. He mingles with them. He feels their sorrows, and he comes to save them. He's not just here for the elites. He's here for all kinds of people, men, women, children. That He brings the good news of the kingdom. See, Jesus came to these people, and Jesus, even when he wanted to avoid the crowds, it's amazing, you read, sometimes Jesus said, well, let's go away and rest for a while. He calls his disciples to come and have a bit of a rest. It's it's like the people just keep following. He can never get away from people. He's always around people. And, and more than that, people are always coming to him. They've seen his great works. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teachings. And they keep coming and coming to him. These people are hungry for a word of hope. They're desperate for his healing touch to heal them of their afflictions. And they're eager for this king to set the world right. And Jesus did. And he did so without grumbling or becoming frustrated. It's, it's amazing. Jesus' heart for the crowds of all these troubled people. As I said, crowds are a funny thing, right? They can energize you, or they can deplete your energy levels. And it's often the case, and you and I both know this, don't we? It's often the case that when people are very needy, it depletes our energy. Even the extrovert who likes being around people, if they're around people that are always bringing all their problems, all their questions, even accusations against you personally, you're like, you know what, I, I don't have time for you. Get out of here. 
But Jesus is not like that. He's not like that. He's around the people. He welcomes them. He invites them. See, Jesus is really then, his entire ministry is like being the drip pan for people's complaints. He's like the human resources department, right? Everybody goes there with their problems. Jesus, I got, I got this relationship issue. Jesus, I got this disease or this sickness or, or this problem or, or this question I have about what I've been taught. What do I do? How are you going to help me? How are you going to alleviate my suffering? But in all of this, Jesus is moved with compassion. That's that billion-dollar word. He's compassionate to people like you and like me with all of our baggage, all of our suffering, and all of our sin. Now you see there, as Jesus goes about all the cities and villages, what does he see? Look down at verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. That word compassion it just describes this kind of strong gut reaction to something that is seen. And he sees this human suffering. Uh, my Greek professor in seminary, he, he had made up a shirt that we could purchase. I didn't purchase one. I wasn't that much of a nerd. But he made up the shirt that you could purchase. And it said, I love Greek with all my splachna. That's the word that's used here. It means I love Greek with all my guts. With everything inside of me. It's this visceral reaction, this gut reaction that Jesus has as he sees these crowds. What an amazing thing as we think of who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God dwelling in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, co-equal. And he willingly takes on flesh, a human body, so that he is moved with compassion as he sees, as he's gathered around people. Jesus is moved with compassion. He enters into the human experience, he himself feeling what it's like to be harassed and even beat down, ultimately crucified. He literally suffers alongside. That's what the word compassion means. It's to suffer or to feel alongside another Jesus enters into our experience as a man. He suffers as a man. And so he is able to have great compassion for men and women of all kinds. See, Jesus suffers alongside us. He enters into our experience. He has compassion. But he does not suffer because of his own sin. That's one way in which Jesus is unique. He's not suffering because of sin. Many of us, we suffer because of our sin, right? We make all sorts of boneheaded decisions, and we suffer as a result of it, just even temporally. Well, Jesus doesn't suffer because of sin, he being the only one without sin. But he is this God-man, and so we would expect then that as God and as man, he would be moved to have compassion, for that is even the essence of who God is, is he is a compassionate God. He's compassionate. Just as, even as we think of Jesus' ministry then here, going around to the cities and the villages, I think it's good for us to remember then that even as we are called to be imitators 
and called to put on Christ, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We see then that being compassionate means willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of those around us. Are, are you willing to be inconvenienced by the people around you? Are you willing to be inconvenienced by your children? Right? Your, your children really expose to you how unwilling you are to be inconvenienced, right? It's like, I, it's, this is my time. Don't bring your squabbles with your sibling to me. Are you willing to be inconvenienced by your spouse? Maybe by aging parents? Compassion means there's a willingness to be inconvenienced by others because you care for them. You care for their well-being. And we see that ultimately in the person of Jesus. Jesus is moved with compassion, and he is moved with compassion because he sees the condition of the crowds, the very pitiful condition of the crowds. And that's the first aspect of Jesus' compassion, really, that I want to highlight this morning, is that Jesus sees our pitiful condition. He sees our pitiful condition, yours and mine. You see that there, again in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Another way you could translate this harassed and helpless is saying that they were bullied and beat down. They're words that suggest, you know, violent opposition, big put-downs. They were being bullied. They had been wearied and worn down. And in particular, Jesus sees that they are in such a condition because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Their leaders are derelict of duty. Their leaders are not leading as God has called them to. So in a proper sense, what Jesus sees here, the condition of the crowds, is that they have been spiritually abused by their leaders. They have been spiritually abused by their leaders who have ignored them or maybe exploited them. And certainly they've been feeding them lies contrary to God's word, lies that are then leading the people astray, ultimately to eternal judgment in hell. Of course, the people were wearied and bullied by their political leaders, by the Romans. The Romans, just like today, they like to overtax people. Right? The, the Romans were not a pleasant people. They, they would steal from hardworking dads. They, they would wring people dry, exploit people. But Jesus actually doesn't have those leaders particularly in mind. Jesus' particular focus is on the religious leaders. The leaders who ought to know better. The leaders who were to, supposed to be pointing people to God. Pointing them back to his word. And telling them to look for the Messiah. But instead of that, they were exploiting. And they were stirring up all sorts of doubts and bringing all sorts of guilt upon the people by their message. So the Sadducees, one group of religious leaders in Israel... Well, the Sadducees, they were what we could call the liberals, right? The progressives. They started taking out of the scriptures. They said, oh, well, you know, these miracles, eh, I don't think we can trust in that. Angels, supernatural, nah, we don't need that. Resurrection, nah, that's not true. And some people were duped by it. 
And then you have the scribes and the Pharisees. These were supposedly the more conservative type. They held to the Bible's message. They went back to the law. They would study the law. They believed in the resurrection. But the key here with these leaders is that instead of taking away from God's word, they started adding to it. They started adding all sorts of man-made traditions, rules. So here's God's word, and then here's a bunch of other laws that you need to do to make God happy with you. And the thing that was completely frustrating for the people was that these leaders did not even do what they told others to do. Jesus talks in Matthew 23, he says that they, that they, they were not willing, they tie up these heavy burdens and they were unwilling to bear them themselves. I tried to think of an illustration maybe of what that was like, uh, uh, an illustration that suits stampede season. So you go down to the midway, the carnival, and you go play whack-a-mole, right? You know that game, whack-a-mole? Bang! The mole comes up, bang! Well, that's essentially what these leaders were doing. It's like, here's a law, bang, do it better! Another law, do it better! And on and on and on, beating people down, graceless, hopeless. And of course, then there was the priests. Well, they, they exploited the people. They robbed from God. They literally got rich and fat from the sacrifices that people were bringing to them. In all of this, Jesus has in mind the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament's passages that indict the leaders of Israel. And in particular, thinking maybe of a passage like Ezekiel 34, where the Lord tells the prophet Ezekiel, he says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the teachers. Why? Because they were feeding themselves and not the sheep. So this is what God says. This is the indictment that God brings to the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel 34, verses 4 and 5. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. That's what Jesus was witnessing with these crowds, these scattered sheep. See, what happens when sheep have no shepherd? Well, they scatter. They, they go astray. They get into all sorts of problems. Sheep, the, the, there's a reason why Jesus uses the image of a sheep so often. Because sheep are really dumb animals. They're, they're not smart. They need a shepherd to lead them. If they don't have a shepherd, their prime bait for wolves and thieves, they're going to go off of cliffs. They're not going to know where to find the good pasture. They need good shepherds. And so these people of Israel, they were being led astray. Led astray into all sorts of false teachings contrary to the word of God. You know, one group, they latch on to the religious zealots. You hear about Simon the Zealot and other zealots, really zealous people. They were looking for political change, political revolution. They sought to overthrow Rome. Let's bring in the kingdom through force. And their leaders, they reinforced these ideas. They taught, yep, we need violent revolution. That's how we're going to bring God's blessing. 
political solutions to spiritual problems. Is it much different today? Many people can latch onto these things. Others, as I said, latched onto the Pharisees' teaching. And what they did is they just kept trying to earn their own spot in the kingdom. If I just do a little bit better, if I just add a little bit more to my own righteousness, then God will approve me. And maybe others, they just got so fed up with the hypocrisy of the leaders that maybe they just abandoned kind of the formal religion thing altogether. I'm just doing my own thing. Does that explain maybe your situation? Maybe some of how you're feeling? Maybe some of your past? Led by these leaders away from Christ. See, Jesus sees our pitiful condition. He sees us all as we truly are, as sheep who have gone astray. Maybe you feel harassed, beat down. Maybe you don't feel, or, or, or maybe you're actually feeling quite comfortable in the path that you're walking on. I think many of these people in this day, they were unknowingly harassed and beat down. They thought that they were getting the good stuff. I mean, there is something in us all, isn't there, that well, we kind of like a little bit of more of the to-do list to do. And if you just give me a little bit more to-do list, because, well, then I can, I can feel righteous. But just don't make it, don't make it Jesus teaching, right? I, I'm fine. I can maybe not commit adultery. Yeah, but can you not lust? Jesus comes to these people and sees them in their pitiful condition. So let me ask you this, Calvary Grace, those who are Christians here, when you look out on the world, what do you see? How do you assess what's going on? How do you see the crowds? Do you see them, even with the eyes of Christ, as being in a pitiful condition, as being like people without a shepherd, in need of a good shepherd? See, that's where Christ's compassion comes from, as he sees these crowds gone astray, being led by false teachings to hell. And he has compassion for them. Do you even have a, a category, too? And I think this is in particular for some of us, maybe Reformed folk. Do you have a category, even as we emphasize sin and people's responsibility for, before God, which we're going to see here in a moment, very clearly, but do you have a category for the fact that people, many people out there, are victims of spiritual abuse? Cult leaders are spiritual abusers. Cult leaders are spiritual abusers. There's many, even so-called pastors, preaching a gospel that if you do the right things, that God is just going to bless you with a bigger house, bigger car, more health. That's, that's spiritual abuse. And Jesus looks to such people with great compassion. See, I fear that the same indictment, which is implied here, it's not only seeing Jesus' compassion, but we see here an implied indictment on the leaders of Israel. I fear, though, that this same indictment might land on many of the spiritual leaders, even those who, as I say, call themselves pastors, who say they believe the Bible, yet teach contrary to it. There's all sorts of people who bear the title of a pastor, or a spiritual leader, or a life coach, and they're essentially doing exactly what these abusive leaders were doing in Israel. They're leading people away from the Word, 
They're questioning the truthfulness of the miracles that we see in the Bible. They're just adding more rules and more rules. It's all graceless. It's all based on human merit or lawlessness. It's sobering even for me this week as I was prepping it, thinking of the role of a pastor as an under-shepherd, as one who is called to lead God's people. And all pastors and all those aspiring to pastor need to be sobered by this reality because it's actually an immense privilege and responsibility to lead God's people. Not to point them to ourselves, but to point them to the good shepherd. Because the pastors that we're going to lead them to ourselves, they're of no good. They need the good shepherd who's going to lead them to green pastures and streams of living water. Christ has compassion. Do you know that? Do you know that Christ has compassion for people like you? Maybe you've been wearied. You feel like you've been beat down, whether it's by politicians or maybe past religious leaders or you've been involved in some group. And you're just kind of wandering around, going astray. You feel like, I just need to do a little bit more. Well, then you need to see Christ's compassion for people such as you and me. See, Jesus sees our pitiful plight. But then the question is, does he do anything about it? And the answer is, of course. Of course he does. So that's the second aspect of Jesus' compassion that I want us to consider is Jesus acts in compassion. It was not just a mere sentiment. He didn't just say, you know, as is common, well, my thoughts are with you. It's, I mean, it's not wrong to say that. It's not wrong to say I'm praying for you. But Jesus did so much more. He did so much more. Look at it there in verse 35. Look at Jesus' ministry of compassion. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So you see there three aspects of Jesus' ministry of compassion. Teaching, preaching, and healing. So first, Jesus is the compassionate teacher. What is teaching? Teaching is explaining something so as to make it more clear to bring understanding. It's, it's to bring clarification to what is maybe cloudy in people's minds. And so Jesus comes to these people who have been bullied and beat down by all sorts of theological misinformation. From the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from the priests. They were being misinformed about what is true. It, and the funny thing is, is, as I said, it's not that much different than it is today. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders were actually labeling Jesus' own teaching as misinformation. Right? So as you see the, the fact-checkers on social media, right? well, these Pharisees, they were fact-checking Jesus. Just a reminder that just because someone fact-checks it doesn't mean that it's always true. But nonetheless, Jesus here is teaching. He's explaining the Word of God. So you go back to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining things. He's explaining the truth of the condition of humanity, the nature of his kingdom, the nature of true righteousness and justice, the purpose of his coming, the way to eternal life. 
And he keeps pointing people back to the Bible, back to the Scriptures, and says, this is God's Word, you can trust it. And he explains it clearly to them. He says, you want to know the way into the kingdom? I'm the way of the kingdom. I'm the way. Now notice there, as well in the text, that Jesus, he taught these things in their synagogues. This was like the Jewish church services. Uh, th these were the places where the Old Testament scriptures, they were read and explained. Just, but Jesus went there, and he taught these people the proper way to understand God's word. Because these leaders had twisted them. They had twisted the truth for their own gain. And so I think, I think it's actually just a helpful re a reminder. As I see guests out here, I don't know what church background you're from. I, maybe you're not even from a church. But just because a church has has on their sign saying, we're a Christian church, does not necessarily mean they're a Christian church. Just because a church says, we love the Bible and we love Jesus, does not necessarily mean that they do. The question that we must ask and consider on the places in which we worship and the people with whom we worship is, do the leaders there understand and teach the Bible as Jesus teaches it? Namely, do they point people to Jesus as the compassionate shepherd who alone can save them. There's many people, many teachers, calling you to pull up your own bootstraps. I remember, I remember, this is an honest story, I remember hearing in a Christian church, a guest preacher coming in and saying, God helps those who help themselves. Is that the gospel? No. That's the kind of stuff that these leaders were shoving down their throat, and it was leading people astray. It was leading them away from Christ. So we need to be discerning then. We need to be discerning even about the kind of teaching that we're receiving as well as giving. We want to be careful teachers of God's Word, even as Jesus was a compassionate and careful teacher of God's Word. So if your church doesn't teach the Bible like Jesus teaches it, with all the sharp edges that confront our sinfulness, our lack of righteousness, and our utter need for him to save us from the judgment to come, then it's time that you need to consider a new church. But we see also that Jesus' ministry of compassion is one where he preaches, or as it says here, proclaims the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, they're similar in that they both involve speaking and explaining God's word. But teaching focuses on explanation, and preaching is focused on exhortation or, or urging. It's an announcement like a herald who comes and says, there's a message you need to hear. You need to believe. And it's good news, Jesus says. It's the good news of the kingdom. There's lots we could say about the nature of Christ's kingdom. But the simplest explanation is that the good news of the kingdom is that the shepherd king has arrived. And he has come to rescue the lost sheep, sheep who have gone astray, who are under judgment, who are destined for eternal destruction apart from him. The king has come, and he is going to shepherd his people home. See, one of the key aspects of God's kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament was that God's kingdom would be governed governed by a good shepherd leader. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 2, 
verse 6. Remember, this is all surrounding the birth of Christ, his entrance into the world. Well, Matthew there, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, quotes from the prophet Micah. And he quotes the prophecy concerning this Messiah, the Deliverer. And Matthew says that this, that this prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus himself. He says in Matthew 2, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will what? He will shepherd my people, Israel. That's what Jesus is announcing. I'm here. The shepherd has come. And I'm going to lead you to the streams of living water, to where there's life and forgiveness. You don't have to keep trying these things. You've seen that you cannot keep the law. That's been abundantly clear since the giving of the law. You can't keep it. But I've come to give you life and life abundantly. I've come to give you access into the kingdom by my own righteousness, by my own death. You see, Jesus' climactic act of compassion is actually then the cross, right? It's the cross. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He takes upon himself the sins, the judgment that the sheep deserve because they've gone astray. They've been kicking against him. They think that they know a better path. And Jesus takes those sins upon himself and all the judgment they deserve. And he gives them life. And he leads them to good pastures, green pastures. And Jesus does have a, a summons. Just as a king would call you to submit, well, Jesus calls the crowds to repent, to believe in him and to follow him. That means he commands them to turn from going their own way, to stop seeking entrance into his kingdom by their own works, to stop their lawlessness, to turn from their lifestyle of ignoring his words, of listening to the lies of these spiritual abusers, of kicking against him like a proud, stubborn sheep. It's a command to turn from those and to come to him as the compassionate shepherd they need. See, this is actually where Jesus then goes astray from many of the world's ideas of how to help weary, bullied, even beat down people, people who are leaderless. We can rightly say that they have been victimized in a proper sense, but the world says that you can never call victims to repentance for their own sins. But Jesus doesn't take that approach. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus says to these very people who are beat down and wearied. And it's actually a liberating thing because what it is is it's saying you can give up trying to get in on your own. You can give up and you need to give up. Stop it. Come to me for life. That's what he's saying. See, Jesus does not eradicate individual responsibility before God. These sheep, yes, they have been led astray, but they've also then chosen to go their own way, Isaiah says. We see here then that deep compassion and doctrinal precision are not enemies. Jesus teaches, he explains things, he confronts them with the gospel of the kingdom. And so, in fact, compassion means that we work hard 
to explain the truth of God's word to God's people in ways that confront incorrect views of God, incorrect views of his kingdom, incorrect views of ourselves. And it urges then people to respond by coming to Christ for all that they need. Jesus doesn't trim down the doctrine for harassed and helpless sheep. He confronts them with their need. But as a good shepherd, he sits down and he explains it. Maybe that's something that, you know, this summer, just think of, think of somebody right now in your mind who is wandering. They've gone astray. Maybe a family member, a friend. Put someone in your mind. And consider maybe that you just need to sit down with them and as Jesus did, is to explain the scriptures to them. They probably got all sorts of questions, all sorts of confusions about them. Explain the scriptures and urge them to come to Christ for all that they need. To unload all their burdens, all their weariness, all their anger, all their sins on him. This is why we spend a lot of time in our gatherings explaining and exhorting people to trust God's word and submit to Jesus Christ as the shepherd who alone can save us. See, compassion means clarifying the truth and urging people to believe it. But we see then, third, a third element in Jesus' ministry there. He not only teaches and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, but he also heals. He heals them. You see that there in verse 35 healing every disease and every affliction. The gospel accounts the many miracles of Jesus. And these miracles, they verified that his message was a message from God. In other words, these miracles were like a loud trumpet blast. They were announcing the kingdom has come, this kingdom age has come, the king has arrived, and you need to pay attention. And everything that this Jesus says, and everything that his apostles who would then write the scriptures say, you need to listen to them because look at the things that they're doing. That was the purpose of the miracles. It was verification of the message and an announcement that the kingdom age had arrived. And it's a reminder, though, as we see Jesus' ministry, as he went around and touched people who had contagious diseases, who was near people, who sat by deathbeds, who opened the eyes of the blind, that Jesus that did all these things, what's very evident then is in his compassion, he has compassion for the whole man. He has compassion for the whole you. Compassion enough to redeem the whole you. That's why he came as a man. That's why he took on flesh, a body. That's why he endured harassment and abuse and even death. And that's why he was raised bodily from the dead. He redeems. He forgives. He sets free and heals people, both body and soul. Now, for many of us, we're like, well, when's that coming? Because we all know that we're wearied. We all have afflictions, don't we? We all feel pressed down. We all get sick. We all die. At the resurrection, Jesus gives new bodies. Jesus cares for the whole person. 
These are like the little appetizers about what these people, if you come to me as a good shepherd, Jesus says, you get into my kingdom, this is all the blessing that you can expect that you'll have in the future. Now maybe you're wondering, well, why is it then that our church, or maybe the church you're involved in, why do we focus so much on imitating Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry, but not his healing ministry? Well, it's a fair question. It deserves its own treatment. But let me just note a couple points to consider. First, as I said, Jesus does care about the entire you. That's why he took on flesh and died and rose bodily and is coming bodily again. He is going to set all things right. He is going to remove all afflictions. He will. He secured it for his people, his sheep. He's going to heal every one of their diseases, every one of your diseases, every one of your afflictions. But the second point of application is this. I think it's the case that many people want to witness these miracles of healing and want to be able to replicate them. But then we miss out on all the multiple opportunities to show compassion by alleviating the suffering of those around us in normal ways. Ways that require self-sacrifice. Right? Do you want to be an imitator of the compassionate Christ who cares for the physical well-being of people? Well, the mother who nurses and cares for the child, keeps that child alive, that's an extension. It's an evidence of compassion. The father who works hard to provide so that you got a shelter over the head of your family and clothing for their backs, food for the table. That's a way to show compassion for the bodily good of people around you. Uh, the middle-aged couple who then take their parents to the, all those doctor's appointments and make sure that they've got the medication that's appropriate and are cared for well, well, they're showing compassion. So don't ignore these regular ways by normal means, which we are called to then do good, to show compassion, to care for the afflicted. Is it the gospel of the kingdom to do those things? No, but it's an expression of Christ-like compassion. And often then, in extending compassion in such ways, meeting the physical needs of others, it then provides a great opportunity to point them to the one who is compassionate in all things and who will heal all their diseases if they believe in him. So Jesus' ministry of compassion is complete. It's whole. It's holistic. But finally, we see that Jesus' ministry of compassion, it actually continues today. He has compassion on, on people like you and me because you see there, as Jesus turns to his disciples, look with me at verse 37. He says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, start an evangelistic campaign. Therefore, you know, have one-to-one -one Bible reading. Therefore, make your sermons better. Well, those are all good. They're all necessary. But what does Jesus focus on? He says, therefore, pray. And pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, not only does Jesus see our pitiful condition and show compassion by teaching and preaching and healing, he also shows compassion by extending his ministry through the various labors that he raises up. 
and sends out into the fields. Laborers who bring the good news of the kingdom to those who haven't heard it. See, as Jesus, he switches images here from the sheep now to the field, from the sheep pen to the field. He says the harvest is plentiful. In other words, what he says is, look out there, look at all these people. He has in mind the people around him and the people in the surrounding regions. And in his mind, he has people even here today. The fields are ripe for harvest. That is, people are ready to receive the gospel. There's lots of people. And of course, the Lord knows that because he's appointed them to receive it. They're going to hear his voice. The harvest is plentiful. Do you believe that? If I'm honest with myself, I can look out there at the world and just see it's all hopeless. It's all a wasteland. Really, are my efforts in preaching a sermon, are my efforts in holding a Bible study and sharing the gospel with my neighbors, are those efforts actually going to do anything? Maybe you feel that way. But the reality is, is Jesus knows that the harvest is plentiful. And because he hasn't come back, that means there's more people out there. There's still more people who are ready to receive the gospel. But the laborers are few, Jesus said. So how does he instruct us? He says that we need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Laborers into his harvest. So this is the third and final point, is that we must obey the command of the Lord to pray earnestly for more laborers. Pray earnestly for more laborers. As I said, prayer is not the only response to all that is happening out there. We need to share the gospel. We need to work. We need to teach. We see that in Jesus' ministry. We need to raise up, train pastors. But prayer must infiltrate every aspect of our ministry. I think there's a particular danger maybe that churches are prone to. Maybe ours in particular, I'm thinking. In that the last two years, we've been focused a lot on being eager to maintain unity and working on relationships here, and we've had to. And those are good things. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. But we need to work hard, I think, to cultivate now a perspective that looks also out and sees, oh yeah, the harvest is plentiful. And then to pray. To pray that God would raise up laborers who would fill the pulpits. I think a lot of people in conversations that I have think the pastors in Alberta are dime a dozen. I can tell you, they are not. They are not. There's a lot of hucksters. There's a lot of shysters. But pastors who actually want to preach God's word, they are very few. Brothers and sisters, will you commit to praying for laborers like this? Will you commit to praying for more laborers from among us? Maybe laborers who will go out and do a church plant in some other country or in this own country. More laborers. See, God is glorified in bringing in the harvest through laborers who are raised through prayer because then it shows that everything is dependent on him. That salvation is his work. Right? Prayer is this very clear demonstration that apart from him we can do nothing. I mean, 
When you call out to God, it's a, it's a statement that I'm helpless. I can't do it. I'm powerless. And so you're appealing. As some versions say, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Plead with him that he would send out laborers who would then bring in the harvest because God has appointed in his wisdom that he uses humans, feeble people like you and me, to carry the gospel, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to teach people, to care for them. Think about this from another angle as well. The fact that Jesus wrote this to the apostles and he instructed his, his first disciples to pray for these laborers means that we today are the laborers that the Lord of the harvest has raised up and is sending out into his harvest. It's amazing to think that you are the answer to the prayers of many people before you who have prayed for more Christians to be saved and gripped with the compassion of Christ that they would then go and call people to Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude, just consider a couple specific ways that we can then labor in the Lord's field with the compassion of Christ. The first is compassion for the lost means we must concern ourselves with more doctrinal precision to clarify God's word in confusing times. We actually need more clarity on things. This is not a time to be fuzzy. These are confusing times. People are very confused. They're confused about even the most basics of life. This is a time for Christians to come with the Bible and say, see, God's perfect perspective. God's perfect perspective. You want to grow in wisdom? Then read and believe these words. To bring these truths and to explain them, to explain them to our children, to explain them to our coworkers and friends. And as we're explaining, to teach them like Jesus taught. And what did Jesus do? Well, he's the only man in the world who could say, you all need to look to me for life. That's what we do as we teach. As we point them to Christ and how he meets every human need. So that's first. We need more doctrinal precision to clarify the truth in confusing times. Secondly, compassion means that we are going to urge people to respond and come to the Good Shepherd. We're not manipulating. We're not twisting your arm. We can't do that. That's the Spirit's work. But we can urge, and we must urge, we must announce, proclaim, exhort people to repent and believe. And so, if you are here today, if this is your first time in church, if these things, maybe you're feeling wearied, beat down, confused, you're like, oh, just another religious sermon. Then I appeal to you and I urge you to repent and to turn from trying to get into God's kingdom and gain his favor by your own doing. Or maybe you have nothing to do with that and you just want to live a lawless life and you just do your own thing. I could care less about God. Is to turn from self-righteousness or self-rule and to come to the compassionate shepherd. Who alone can give you life? The sheep will hear his voice. The sheep need to hear his voice. And the third, 
third application is that we should sing. We should sing because Christ's compassion for us never ceases, church. People are going to let us down. We'll be led astray by others. We'll certainly be led astray by our own sinful passions. But we have a continually compassionate good shepherd who's going to keep bringing us back. He's going to keep bringing us back, and he's going to lead us and bring us to good pastures so we can entrust ourselves to him. Do you see the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers? Like you and me. That's what we all need. We're all beat down. We feel bullied. And so it is strikingly refreshing then to see that Jesus, the God-man, has compassion for people like you and me. And so we sing. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, verse 13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Do you know that? That Christ is a compassionate Savior and shepherd for battered, bullied, weary and wandering sinful sheep like us. He's the shepherd you need. And if you believed on him, he's the shepherd you have. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, cause people to know the compassion of Christ and to come, to come to him for refreshment, knowing that he continually showers his people with compassion. Lord, make it so and cause us to sing even in light of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we sing.